Let us pray. O God, almighty and merciful, you heal the brokenhearted and turn the sadness of the sorrowful to joy. Let your fatherly goodness be upon all whom you have made. Remember and pity all those who are this day destitute, homeless, elderly, infirm, or forgotten. Bless the multitude of your poor. Lift up those who are cast down. Mightily befriend innocent sufferers and sanctify to them the endurance of their wrongs. Cheer with hope all who are discouraged and downcast, and by your heavenly grace, preserve from falling those who, whose property tempts them to sin. Though they be troubled on every side, suffer them not to be distressed. Though they be perplexed, save them from despair. Grant this, O Lord, for the love of him who for our sakes became poor, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today we come to the end of 2 Timothy, to the end of our pastoral epistles class, and fittingly, perhaps morbidly so, we also come to St. Paul's final words of Scripture and his final inspired correspondence with Timothy. Now, the concept of last or final words may not be intriguing to you personally, but they have certainly captivated the imagination of many cultures throughout history, even our culture, which seeks at every turn to reverse aging and hide from our mortality, has an interest in recording and and reading people's last words, as if last words have some sort of special status. Why do we, collectively, if not personally, have such an infatuation with final words? Robert Kastenbaum, who was a scholar who focused on the sociology and psychological aspects of aging and death, uh, wrote in an article called, appropriately, Last Words, um, which, to be fair, is tangential to our class, but in in his article, he does make two points that I think helps us frame what is happening in 2 Timothy. His first point is that given a series of things, first, second, third, all the way to last, we tend to view the first and the last items in that series as being more important than what comes in the intermediary, in the middle. This makes sense of our experience. Uh, There is one estimate that says that we speak roughly 840 million words in an average lifetime. And of those 840 million words, it is our first words and our last words, which are most celebrated by those closest to us. Now, that's certainly interesting observation. um, And an interesting fact about how our psychology tends to work But I think it's actually his second point that hits home for us today. The quote is there for those of you who can see it. In a sense, writes Kassenbaum, our lives include many last words. The last words we share before going to sleep or on a voyage. The last words we speak in this class session, this semester, or this career the last words we say to this person or that person and so forth. 
Each parting statement has at least a faint resonance with the final parting. Separation points are points of emotional vulnerability and cognitive instability. They are occasions when one often wants to say and hear reassuring words. One reason, perhaps even the main reason that we are drawn to last words is their vulnerability. When we leave one another, whether by death or another reason, all pretense is stripped away. We embrace the vulnerability that we may otherwise try to ignore. Indeed, as St. Paul said regarding his and Timothy's last departure in 2 Timothy 1.4, I remember your tears and I yearn to see you again. Death, our ultimate departure until the resurrection, tends to only multiply our vulnerability. We turn now to St. Paul's last words. The Holy Spirit gifts us with a look at St. Paul's vulnerability to his son in the faith. We also will see St. Paul's urgency regarding the proclamation of the gospel and ministry. And finally, we will see St. Paul's reflection on his own death and God's fidelity even in his martyrdom. Our outline for our last class. St. Paul's last charge. St. Paul's last reward. St. Paul's last wishes. And St. Paul's last word. As I said last week, the whole of chapter 3 was building up to our passage today, in which St. Paul gives his last charge to Timothy in verses 1 through 5. First, we'll look at the charge itself and then the reason for St. Paul's urgency. Verses 1 and 2 says this, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I solemnly urge you, proclaim the message. Be persistent whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. Convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience in teaching. So the first thing that we notice in this passage is that St. Paul is building to his charge, his final charge. He's layering phrase after phrase that all serve to multiply his urgency. First, St. Paul declares that he is giving Timothy his final charge in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. And as we've said throughout this class, God is the only true sovereign. He is our highest authority. And so the truth is that everything we do is quorum deo, in the presence of God. There is nothing that escapes his gaze. But the apostle here emphasizes that this ministry, both the charge is being given and the ministry is to be conducted quorum deo, in the presence of God. By making it explicit, he is emphasizing that fact adding urgency to the charge. Second, in continuing that emphasis, Paul mentions that this charge comes in the presence of Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Third, when he enacts this judgment, it will be at his appearing in the appearing of his kingdom. 
None of this is meant to strike fear in Timothy. This isn't to get Timothy trembling and concerned about getting it right or else he will face judgment. This is all in light of the encouragements that St. Paul has offered all throughout the epistles, including Paul's assurance of Timothy's faith in chapter 1. Timothy does not need to fear God, nor the final judgment. Rather, what the apostle is doing is building the sense of urgency and importance. And, having done so, he finally delivers his charge in verse 2. Preach the word, be ready, regardless of whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. Convince, rebuke, and encourage. Do all this with the utmost patience and teaching. St. Paul's final charge has two main commands and three explanatory commands. The first and chief command is preach the word. This command is the culmination of chapter three. It's what we have been building to. And included in this is the proclamation of the gospel and sound doctrine, primarily at their time through the teaching of the Old Testament as interpreted by the apostles in light of Jesus. It would be unfathomable to Paul, to preach and teach from the Old, Old Testament scriptures apart from interpreting them in light of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Our second main command is that Timothy is to be ready to preach the word regardless of whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. We could paraphrase this command as preach the word even when it is inconvenient. That is, whether your ministry is flourishing or floundering. Whether the people are willing to hear you or not. Whether you are free to proclaim the gospel or facing the unjust sword of Rome. Preach the word. Then comes three explanatory commands which spell out the goals of preaching the word. The telos. Convince, rebuke, and encourage. To convince is to convict. To help others recognizing their wrongdoings and sin. This is, ultimately, the work of the Holy Spirit. And just so we're all clear, we make terrible Holy Spirits. But at the same time, God uses our preaching and teaching and proclamation as a means by which he brings that conviction. It is not on us to convict, but to preach the word. And through that, the Holy Spirit will bring conviction on those whom he pleases. The beautiful truth here is that the pressure is off of us. As we faithfully proclaim the truth about sin, salvation, and holiness... We don't have to expertly craft our words or have all the answers. God has created all that is out of nothing. He can work through our bumbling fidelity to save others. Rebuke and encourage are the same words that we've seen throughout the pastoral epistles. 
They're the concepts that we looked at when we studied what different postures the church should take towards false teachers on one hand and faithful family members on the other. False teachers are to be rebuked. God's family is to be encouraged. And then finally, this entire charge is to be carried out with utmost patience and teaching. St. Paul explains the reasons for his urgency in giving this charge in verses 3 through 5. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Should be a not up there, I think. But, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. St. Paul's use of the future tense, for the time is coming when, is interesting. Because the very things that he mentions in this passage are not only happening at the time he writes this epistle, People are already turning away from listening to the truth and wandering into myths. But they were the very reason he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus to begin with. Years earlier. And so if we consider the context of this passage, what Paul has already already said about the last days that we looked at last week or the week before... And his charge in this passage to be ready, whether the times are good or bad, then I think our best reading of this passage is simply that both Timothy and the church will continually face difficult ministry. The sense of urgency is always with us. Apostasy and false teaching will only end when Christ returns and all knees bow in recognition of Christ as the true king over all things. Having given his final charge, St. Paul turns to contemplate his own life, ministry, and impending death in verses 6 through 8. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that last day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. St. Paul's martyrdom has been the ghost haunting all of this epistle until now. Here, St. Paul speaks plainly. The time of my departure has come. All flourish and pleasantries are stripped away and laid bare before the gaping maw of death. And we are able to see in hindsight that all which, which Paul has said before, Paul's clear affection for Timothy, his concern, his urgency, and his encouragements have been said devoid of pretense. He reflects on his life of faith, 
And in doing so, he says three things in response. First, I have fought the good fight. Second, I have finished the race. Third, I have kept the faith. These three statements allude to the three metaphors for faithful ministry that St. Paul gave in chapter 2. The soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. The point in these metaphors, which really are short parables, was that there is a reward for those who show fidelity in the midst of suffering. And I love this passage because it's as if Paul is saying, let's drop the pretense. We're outside the realm of parable now. I'm the soldier. I'm the athlete. I'm the farmer who is reaping his reward. And one day, you will be too. Everyone will. But for now, it's my time that has come. So, then, what is St. Paul's reward for his life of fidelity? The crown of righteousness given to him by Christ himself. There's a sense of poetic beauty here because, after all, Paul didn't win the race. He merely finished it. The race was won 30-some-odd years before St. Paul even wrote this epistle. Christ won the race, and the victory crown is his to do with as he pleases. The testimony of St. Paul in Scripture is that it is his good pleasure to give it to us. Like the loaves of bread and fish, which also belong to Christ. He takes his crown of righteousness and multiplies it, freely giving it to all those who come to him in faith. Regardless of whether we run across that finish line, or we walk, or crawl, or have to be dragged across it by friends who are faithful to us, the reward is the same. The righteousness of Christ before God the Father. And therefore, says St. Paul, the crown is not only for me, but also for all who have longed for his appearing. And so, we end the epistle where we began. St. Paul begins his letter saying that that he desired to see Timothy again and that as Timothy was already aware, he had been deserted while in prison. With more detail, the apostle restates his final wish for Timothy to come and visit. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful in my ministry. I have sent Tychicus to to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will pay him back for his deeds. 
You also must beware of him, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support. All deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and save me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Do your best to come before winter. So St. Paul writes to Timothy from prison. Demas has deserted both the apostle and the faith. Crescens and Titus have been called away by God to ministry elsewhere. St. Paul has sent Tychicus to Ephesus, presumably to deliver the letter that we are studying now, perhaps also to fill in while Timothy visits Paul. Only St. Luke remains with the apostle, and to make matters worse, winter appears to be approaching, and Paul seems to be without even a simple cloak to keep warm. This is the situation that Paul faces at the end of his life. And his last wish amounts to this. I'm alone, I'm cold, and I will be dying soon. Come visit me, my son. Bring me a jacket and some of my favorite books. Bring Mark, too. It's with this last last wish, this context, that St. Paul had said, I yearn to see you again. 2 Timothy 1.4 and that seeing Timothy again would make his joy complete. All pretense swept away, truth spoken in the vulnerability of last words before his final departure. And in this situation, alienated and desolate, I can't help but think of Harry Potter. In book 7, the second act, We find Harry the fugitive, completely alienated from nearly every relationship, camping in the winter and moving from place to place, imprisoned, as it were, with the whole of the English countryside, a jail cell. I think, too, of Sam and Frodo's journey into Mordor, completely cut off from the rest of the fellowship, without news of how their friends are faring and staring down the great eye itself. At the end, Frodo, now less one finger and with the ring consumed by the fires of Mount Doom, turns to his friend and says, all is over. I am glad you are here with me at the end of all things, Sam. These are pictures of Paul's end of life, alienated, alone cold and yet seeing Timothy would make his joy complete I'm glad you were here with me at the end of all things Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 6 through 8 just before ending the first epistle with a charge to Timothy to fight the good fight of faith the very same fight that St. Paul is now finishing The apostle contends that godliness with contentment is great gain, for we 
brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. These words ring true at the end of all earthly things for St. Paul. Come, bring yourself my cloak, mark, and my books, and my joy will be made complete. With that, we come to St. Paul's final word of Scripture. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Is there any more appropriate way for St. Paul to end his ministry but with a blessing and the assurance of God's loving presence and grace? From the moment that God's grace overflowed the apostle's life as recounted in 1 Timothy 1.14 until the very moment that God's grace brought him <coughs> safely home, as he says in 2 Timothy 4.18, St. Paul's life and ministry were nothing less than the embodiment of John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Not a metaphor for Paul. Tis grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. If anyone can say that, it's St. Paul. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Yea, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. I love this last part because there's this change, right, from first person to first person singular, from I to first person plural, we. When we've been there 10,000 years, Bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. God's grace brought the Apostle Paul safely home. Later, it would do the same for Timothy. And one day, it will do the same for us. When confronted with his own possible death, King David wrote in Psalm 27, stripped of pretense, filled with vulnerability, that his greatest desire was that he might behold the beauty of the Lord. Confronted with his own death, St. Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles writes that he desires that each of us would behold the same. Dear Church, faithful family of God, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, may we finish the race by the power of the Holy Spirit, whether we're running, whether we're walking, whether we're crawling or being dragged by our faithful family. May we finish knowing that our crown has already been won. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all.
Amen.